0: We're starting this new series, it's called Eternity, all right? And uh, why would we talk about it? Why would we talk about eternity? Like what, what, what difference does eternity necessarily make? And we really do believe as a church that how we see it, how we view it, how we understand and even talk about it as a church, this idea of eternity can really determine and influence uh, how we live today with the proper perspective, with the proper understanding, with being able to see, and especially the way God uh, tells us what's going to happen. And so uh, I want to look at some theme verses and the bottom line that's going to take us over the next several weeks in this series. Uh, We're going to start with Paul's letter uh, to the Corinthians. And he says, For we know that when this earthly tent that we live in is taken down... By the way, Paul was a tent maker, so he just used his example, right? This earthly tent that we have, when it's taken down, which he means, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing, for we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. Now let me just go ahead and lay this out there for you so everybody can get the the proper picture. You know, we are not going to be wispy, spirit like ghosts when we die okay that's not what we are told we are going to have a new body that's that's the that's what scripture says there's no you're not going to sprout wings okay you're not an angel just to let you know you do realize angels are created beings by god just as you are a created being by god right so understand we are not going to become angels that's not how it works Paul's just saying, look, when this body dies, there is a process of things. There's some things that are going to happen, and one of those things you need to know is you are not going to be a naked baby with wings floating on a cloud somewhere playing a harp, okay? That's not going to happen. You're going to have a body. Yeah, amen, that's right, Don. You're going to have a body, okay? Now, he keeps going. Go to verse 8. He says, yes, we're fully confident, and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged, and we will receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil that we have done in this earthly body. Paul wants to hit a few things just to help the church understand what happens when you die. What happens? But before we do that, I'm just going to give you the bottom line. Okay, This is bottom line for the next several weeks. We want to make sure you know this. We're going to read it out loud together. Let's read this bottom line together so we can kind of get it in our heads. Let's read it out loud. What you believe about eternity determines how you live today. One more time. Let's all read it as a church together. You ready? What you believe about eternity determines how you live today. What you believe about what happens when you die does have an influence, does have an impact. Why? Because if you really do believe, listen, if you're, if you're just one of these people who you believe, you know, you sort of, you sort of came, it, your life is an accident, you know, or just some sort of, you know, cosmic, you know, kind of coming togetherness of just chaotic events around you, and you're going to die and go back to the earth, you know, the way, the way it's supposed to be, or whatever in your mind you think that looks like, then of course, it would affect how you live today because this life is all you have. Right, this is the things you have to worry about. The things that you're going for, the things that you're you're attempting is is so important because this is your shot. Maybe you believe that you come back, you know, based on how you live with some sort of that's kind of like a karma thing. You know, you, you you're going to be reincarnated. So I don't want to be a snail next time. You know, I want to be some sort of Arabian prince next time. You know, like rich. You know, I want I want to be a Hollywood movie star. I want to I want to come back better than I was here before. So it affects how you live. Or you can believe what followers of Christ believe is that we have an eternal home, that there was eternity before us and there is eternity after us. And again, how we live and how we see that determines what we do, what we say, the actions we take, the way we live. Here's Paul's, again, we're going to use this kind of just as a jumping off point to talk about things over the next couple of weeks, but here's Paul's primary idea is that our physical bodies are going to die, right? They're going to die. The physical bodies we have are going to die. And yet, there seems to be this this idea through Scripture, and even as Paul was saying, that the soul continues to live, that there is life after physical death. Physical death happens, but there is life after that. I'm just making this really as easy as I can. The third is that all souls that continue to live all souls face judgment. Okay? All souls face judgment. Now, the judgment aspect of things is pretty, uh, it's a little complex. I'm going to make it fairly simple today because next week I want to explain it a little bit more deeply. But because of the content today, I really want to just kind of hit this. That there's really, as Scripture talks about, there's really two judgments at work. There's a judgment called the great white throne judgment, and it primarily affects Non-believers. Okay? It primarily affects non-believers. And again, I'll go way into more detail about that next week. That there's a judgment called the judgment seat of Christ, which is for believers only. It's for believers only. And so there's, there's this idea. So the writer of Hebrews says, really, it's, it's destined for every man to die, just as it is, it is written and destined that every every man, every soul will face Judgment. All right? Now, I want to come back to that in a minute, but where we're going to split here over the next two weeks is from this place of judgment. Today, I want to talk about heaven. Okay? I want to talk about eternity from the idea of heaven. Next week, I'm going to talk about hell in terms of the idea of eternity with hell and how the Bible talks about it and how we believe things and how we see things and how our culture has influenced us. But that's, that's kind of the splitting off point over the next couple of weeks. So today we're going this way. Okay? We're going this way. We're, going, we're talking about the judgments. I'll go back to the judgments in a minute and more detail next week. But at this point, your body dies, your soul lives on, you face judgment, and for the believer the judgment seat of Christ is heaven. Now, heaven is let's just say it's hard to describe, right? I haven't been there, just to let you know. Just to let you know, I, I can't speak from firsthand experience, you know? I can tell you that, that we have an incredible Word of God, which speaks really clearly, as, best, as clearly as we can see it, not really maybe understand it all, about what is to come. And yet, we sort of, when you think about heaven, I could go to everybody in this room and say, what do you think when I say heaven? You might have a really different idea of what heaven looks like. Your imagination, it's filled by imagination and stories and stories when you were younger and the church maybe and maybe the influences beyond that. Usually, go ahead and go to the show, some, some of the pictures. Usually there's a stairway somewhere, right? I mean, there's a song written about that, right? There's a stairway involved. There's something, you know, in terms of the clouds. Usually there's a gate involved with somebody with a clipboard standing in front of it, you know? That's your idea, you know, initially in terms of of heaven. A lot of times when we think of heaven, we think of God, and so people kind of attribute heaven to God. And it can be everything from sort of a modern day interpretation like Morgan Freeman, you know, or something where God is dressed in an awesome white suit and, you know, kind of appears to you however you want to see him. The shack is another example of sort of just the illustration of of just the way in which God can approach man and what that looks like. Sometimes it goes back to mythology and stories of of Greek and Roman gods, and this is, go back uh, the Greek Roman gods uh, of Zeus, you know, and so we get some of the movies and things that kind of show us what it would look like for Mount Olympus and how they would rule things and just standing on the, you know, over the earth and ruling and toying with men. And so that, that sometimes does help us, I, th- I would say help us, but it also kind of maybe can hinder us in our view, maybe in imagination and understanding of, of heaven. And then we have sort of modern art, which I would call modern art. Um, This is a very popular TV show where you talk about the good place or the bad place, right? They don't want to call it heaven or hell. It's called the good place and the bad place, right? And and an entire conversation and narrative about what does it take to get into the good place and what does it take to get into the bad place and the trickery that maybe happens in in the show of what that all looks like. There's also, again, modern sort of folk you know, ology, if you will, of, I think I made that up. Um, uh, you know, there's sort of modern art that kind of talks us through what is it going to be like? And I love this this beautiful painting, uh, but it's really more like it's going to be a big family barbecue, right? You know, show up and it's going to be everybody's dressed in white and a big family barbecue and reunion happening. And, and, and listen, I don't want you to think that any necessarily, any of these images are wrong, but I don't think any of these images are right, right? I mean, they, they really can't, encapsulate the fullness of what heaven really is. And so my, my confession to you this morning is I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about it, uh, but there's no possible way that I'm going to do a very good job describing it to you. Just not. We don't have, I don't have the vocabulary. We don't have the time, right? Nor do, we, I, nor do I even think we really can barely comprehend and have the imagination to fully grasp it. You have to understand, uh, John, the, one of the disciples of Jesus, John is given a vision by Jesus. He pulls back the veil. It's called Revelation. It's the last book in your New Testament. He pulls back the veil, and John is told to describe what happens and to write it down, right? Well, he does the best he can. With the words and the language and the understanding that we have sort of limited in sort of our finite minds, He tries to describe what I'll I'll be honest is indescribable. So John's doing his best to write it down. That's, I think it's a I think it's a bird. It's got three lion heads on it. There's some sort of tail, you know. Like he's trying his very best to describe a creature that doesn't exist in our mind or our, our imagination. Doesn't exist here, but exists there. Everybody with me? He's doing his best. So imagine, John is doing his best to record and tell us about it. We're doing our best, with our finite minds, to receive it and understand it. And yet I really do think that even at our best, best effort, we're going to fall short, which I want you to hear me, that should be hopeful to us. That even in our best way of understanding it, it's going to fall short of how amazing and glorious and awesome it's actually going to be. And that's going to be my position uh, this morning as we walk through it. Now, let's go back. Uh, I'm going to. Uh, this is a great again. Paul kind of describing it. What the scriptures mean when they tell us that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind can imagine what God has prepared for those who love Him. And I think that really has to do with this life and the next. That there is there is just the fact that God has. All of these things for us, and quite frankly, even when it comes to heaven, that we just can't. We can't see it. We can't hear it. We don't have the ears and the eyes and the mind to comprehend, but we sure are going to try, okay? We're sure going to try. I want Scripture to do the talking. So we have a lot of Scripture to go through this morning. I'm going to put a lot of it on the screen. Uh, Please take notes if you. this is something you want to go back and read and study on your own. There's so much more Scripture than what I'm going to read today just literally hitting the highlights of things for us to be able to grasp and kind of talk about uh, heaven. First thing I wanna say is this about heaven. Heaven is the reward for our life of faith. Now, I want want everybody to say this word. This is one word, just say it out loud. Say it like you saw where I pointed, all right? Say the one word together, Reward. reward, okay? This is a little bit of a difficult word for most Christians, okay? And it's because of a tension that exists um, among many, many different types of theology and doctrine when it comes to works-based salvation, works-based doctrine, works-based theology, and, and how it is that we please God. Because listen, over the course of all of human history, everyone has been trying to figure out how to get to eternal life. Everyone is trying to figure out how to please God. Everyone in every culture, in every place on the earth is trying to figure out how to do it. So Christians have had to be very careful of words like this because we want to be able to help people understand the fullness of the grace of God. And yet sometimes I think we miss the reward. Heaven is, listen, heaven is a reward for your life of faith. That's what it is. And not only is it, and I'll, and I'll kind of walk you through a couple of scriptures here uh, quickly. Jesus saves us by grace. We do know this, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves, not by anything we've done, so we cannot boast about it. Nod your head if you're with me. Yes? That is how we are saved. That is how we are, are, are justified, because of what Christ did for us. But Jesus rewards our faith. Okay? He does. We are going to stand at the, the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to be rewarded for what we do and what we've done with what he's given us. Again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. We are all going to be accountable, right? Right? So we are going to be rewarded. There's all sorts of language about crowns and all sorts of things. This is not to give you or I some sort of puffed-up self-righteous faith. It's to give us the understanding that, yes, as James talks about it, real faith comes with real deeds, Real faith comes with real action. It's not your intention. It's not what you were thinking you were going to do. It's not the, the belief that you have. James goes on to say, look, you believe in God? Great. You want a cookie? Demons believe in God. And they tremble. Belief is not enough. Faith, real faith, comes with action, comes with, with works, comes with, you know, that's, that's James's words. Comes with a life of faith that Jesus is going to judge and reward you for. What is he going to reward us for? What is he going to judge? Well, a few things that I've read in terms of Scripture. We're going to be judged by how we treat others, because that's a big part of what he's called us to do. We're going to be judged by our motives, the motives by which we did things. We're going to be judged by the words that we say and the words we didn't say. We're going to be, in, we're going to be judged by how we endured suffering We're going to be judged and rewarded based on whether we brought people to Christ. That's a big one. It's very clear in Scripture. Now, many people struggle with this, not just because of the language, not just because of the the, the tension in the theologies. Most people don't even get to this place of heaven being the reward or heaven existing at all because most people fall for what I believe the enemy's greatest tactic is when it comes to eternity. So, if I were Satan, and I wanted to put a major stumbling block into people's life of faith, in terms of how they live their life every day in the life of faith, one of the major strategies I would have is, number one, I would try to convince you that hell doesn't exist. That it doesn't exist. That's number one. We're going to talk about that next week. Number two, I would try to convince you of things that heaven isn't all that... You don't need to get all that excited about your next life. You don't need to get all excited about heaven. It's really not worth getting excited over. You're just going to be a fat baby with wings, you know, you know, playing harps. Or I would simply try to convince you that everybody's going to be there anyway. I mean, everybody's going to be there. It's just, it just is what it is. And so I want to talk about heaven today as we talked about describing heaven In terms of our journey, our understanding, but I want to talk about it by kind of trying to debunk some of those, I think, major myths that not only does our culture believe, but it bleeds into the church. It bleeds into the people of God. It bleeds into the people who don't know the Word of God and don't see eternity through the lens by which He's given us to see eternity. So the first one, okay? First one's simple. Heaven's boring right? Heaven's boring. I think Don mentioned this several weeks ago. Like the idea that he, he doesn't want to sing for eternity. He hates singing now, right? Unless, uh, unless it's uh, what were we were talking about the other day, like I'll Fly Away. Like, so there, there's some great songs that Don will, if you want to get Don Gentry engaged in singing, you, you break out one of those. Oh, what was that? Days of Elijah. Oh yeah, break out Days of Elijah. He's going he's gonna to sing along with you, okay? There's a few, but even Don doesn't want to sing Days of Elijah for a millennium, right? None of us do. And yet sometimes that seems to be what's sort of sold. Listen, I grew up in southern gospel music. It's still one of my favorite genres of music. I don't care if you don't like it. It's my, it's my, it's my music. It's what I love. I love tight harmonies. I love the kind of country-esque you know, gospel rhythms. I love it. gospel music. Listen to it this morning, worshiping on my way to church. And yet the majority of gospel music and southern gospel music is all about heaven. I don't know if you knew this or not. It's all about heaven. Many It's with many of the hymns. And even their best effort, it's pretty boring. The music is pretty much the only thing that excites me most of the time. They try to use words to describe it, but it just doesn't do it for me. So I have to go to the Word of God. I have to understand what He gave me to see and experience and understand what will heaven be like? And, and, and then let it influence me in how I live. Because heaven, as the Scriptures describe it, heaven is not boring. Let me just give you a few few passages. The Old Testament, this prophetic passage says, look, I am creating a new heaven and new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. He says, be glad, rejoice forever in my creation, and look, I will create Jerusalem as a what? Just say it out loud. As a place of happiness. Her people will be source of joy keep going. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people, and the sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. I love that passage. I love some of that, and you'll hear that in several different places, but I love the, the way Isaiah kind of just said, look, this, this creation of new things, this him making all things new, by the way, let me just go ahead and say, heaven is not a cloud city, okay? It's not. It is a new heaven and a new earth. It's a new heaven and a new earth, And why is it a place of happiness? Why is it going to be the source of joy? Because everything that you think that you love about this earth right now pales in comparison to the new one, right? Pales in comparison. There is no beach view. There is no mountain summit overlook, you know. There is no great wonder of the world that compares to the new heaven and new earth. And you're not going to be comparing it because you're not going to remember you know, you're not going to go into the city, Jerusalem, and there's this heavenly city and go, you know, I like New York better. You know, that's not going to be there. Okay, why? Because it's going to be perfection. It's going to be everything you think you enjoy perfectly. This doesn't sound boring to me. That's why he says it is going to be a place of happiness, a place of joy. This is, again, John describing in Revelation what he saw. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Again, very consistent in Scripture. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are going to be gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne says, look, I'm making all things new. We simply cannot, again, we, I just don't know if we can handle it. The Old Testament descriptions of when people experienced the glory of God, it was just a taste, it was just a moment that almost killed them. Moses, who said, I want to see your glory, I want to see you, God just sort of chuckled and said, no, can't handle the truth. You know what I'm saying? Remember that line? right? You can't can't handle that. I'll let you see sort of the, the exterior aura as I pass you by. And even that, he glowed for days because of the experience of the glory of God. I don't think we again. This is one of the things I just don't think we can understand what it's going to be like to see Jesus face to face. To for God to not just be this in our minds at least, even if He's here or if He's here or wherever you kind of picture God being. The Godhead, we will experience the fullness of the Godhead face to face. His, his home will be with us. I can't describe that as boring. There's nothing about the way Scripture tells us that that's going to be when, when He says that's going to be like that. And because of that, there's going to be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more tears. I love this again. This goes a little bit later on. Paul says, or uh, uh, John says, I saw no temple in the city. Man, there's no need for churches, there's no need for temples. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need for the sun or the moon because the glory of God illuminates and the Lamb is its light. No need for sun and moon. You know, this is is an existence that illuminates all things. The gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. I want you to just picture this again because this is something, again, we struggle with. God exists outside of time because he is the one who created time. Nod your head. I don't want to blow any circuits real quick, all right? God exists outside of time because he created time. But when we get to heaven, when we experience this eternity that has no end, it's because the gates are open all day, because there is no night. There is no time. There's no need for a sun or a moon, because God lights it up. He's the only light that's needed. He goes on to say, nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This Lamb's Book of Life is really special, and we're going to talk more about it next week. Again, I promise I'm going to give you a little bit more. I've got to piece out this <laughs> the best I can in terms of the Jewish custom, in terms of what what the Jewish people understood about what that meant for them. He said, there's there's not going to be any evil. not going to be any pain. This is a summary statement that I heard from uh, the pastor of Life Church out in Oklahoma City. This is a summary statement that I just loved. I wrote it down. I wanted to give it to you. Heaven really is the absence of everything bad and painful and evil, and it is the presence of everything good, and holy, and glorious. There's no way to describe this as boring. Not if we know God's Word, not if we truly see and understand how He describes heaven to us. There is no more anxiety, there is no more depression, there is no more cancer, there is no more heartache, there is no more pain, there's no more sore joints, amen, right? Ladies, there's no more time of the month. Amen. Amen. Right? Okay, there is no more brokenness, no more evil at all. And the presence of God face to face, experiencing Him, where He is the light for all things. and understanding that He is the one who wipes those tears from our eyes, He is the one who sets us up in these new bodies that He creates for us to experience a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be, and I use the word all the time, awesome, right? not going to be boring. If at any moment in your, in your life you've ever not been all that excited about thinking about heaven, I promise you, it is the tactic of the enemy of your soul who has weaved his way into your mind, weaved his way into your imagination to shut it down so that it doesn't affect how you live today? Second myth, I gotta move a little quickly. Second myth is that heaven is our default destination. Common cultural belief. Heaven is pretty much where everybody's gonna go unless you're bad, unless you're evil, and most people don't think that they are. Well, I'm not evil. I haven't murdered anyone, right? I haven't, I haven't abused anyone. I'm not a drug dealer. I haven't hurt children, okay? Remember, we have a sliding scale of sin that we think is bad versus good. No, we assume that heaven is the default. That's just where everybody's going to show up. And then only the bad ones, again, from the TV show, go to the bad place. And that's not at all what Scripture tells us. Jesus actually says it this way. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. Language is important. Jesus is pretty clear. They're choosing that way. But the gateway to life is, is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. We'll talk a little bit more next week, but guys, it's, it, it gets a little sobering when you begin to finally walk through the, 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 the eyes and the understanding of eternity, and you start understanding that maybe not all your friends are going to be there. Maybe not all your family is going to be there. Maybe not all the people in this world who tried to make the world a better place is going to be there. Jesus makes several statements that helps us understand that there really is only one way. The clearest he was, was in John, where he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, and you're going to trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If not so, I wouldn't have told you, and I'm going to go there and prepare a place for you. Talking about heaven. He says, when everything is ready, I'll come and get you so that you will always be with me. These are, he's speaking to people who, are with, who get to experience the joy of being with him now. And he says, don't worry, guys. Don't worry, ladies. You're going to be with me again. And you know the way that I'm going. Now, poor Philip uh, panics, sorry, Thomas panics and says, uh, we don't know the way. Okay. Okay? It's one of those moments, have you ever had those moments where somebody's trying to teach you something and they pass something very important and you were just like, uh, I'm missing something. And this is what he felt like. This was Thomas going, uh, no, we don't know, Jesus. Please be clearer. We have no idea where you're going, so we don't know the way. And Jesus goes on to say, well, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, comes to the Father, except through me. Now, for our modern day and culture, people argue that this is really, really exclusive. Okay? It's really, really exclusive. And I've just got news for you. Yes, it's true. It's very exclusive. The invitation is to all. It's to all. That's where the inclusion comes in. But the exclusiveness of what happens here is because Jesus says, there really isn't any other way but through me. I'm the only way. Jesus doesn't care that our culture is trying to be a little more tolerant and a little less judgy with one another and you know, kind of that relative truth of you can believe what you want to believe and I can believe what I want to believe and that's okay. No, that's not true. Jesus is going to judge us And there's only one way. Everybody say one. One One way. There's only one way. And it's through him. Paul says it this way, in terms of just including everybody, everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. That's everybody, right? And then he goes on to say, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did it through Christ Jesus, the only way. When he freed us from the penalty of our sins. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Bottom line, good people don't go to heaven. They don't. You know who goes to heaven? those who have embraced and accepted the gift that Jesus bore on the cross for them and those who have in turn surrendered their life to him and are now living a life of faith in which we will be rewarded with heaven. That's something, again, that I think people are just going to consistently struggle with. They just are. This culture is going to constantly come back and say, well, that doesn't make any sense, and that's not fair, and that's not right, and how could you possibly believe that? And i got news for you. God doesn't really care what you think you believe and what you think is right. He wrote the book on what is right, and He wrote the book on what is wrong. He's the author of life. Now, I want to end it like this, just to make it it come back together for us. We could spend a lot more time describing heaven and describing and trying to working through the myths of how I believe the enemy has tried to kind of take our minds off of that eternity for the followers of Christ. But I want to just take the last few minutes and give you three ways in which I really do believe that when you allow the Word of God and you allow Scripture to influence how you see and how you understand eternity, why? Because what we believe... Right, what we believe about eternity determines how we live today, what we're going to do, how it affects us as we live this life of faith. So Let me give you three things really quickly that I really do believe that this view, this understanding, this proper understanding of eternity, how it influences our lives today. First and foremost, Paul is speaking to the church in Philippi, and he's talking about giving contrast to to those of the world and those who follow Christ, those who are unbelievers and those who are believers. And Philippians 3, he says it this way. He says, their mind is set on earthly things, talking about those, those who live for this life only, those who have no choice, they have no other option living for themselves. Their mind's here. But our citizenship is in heaven. Okay, Our citizenship, our home, is there, and we eagerly await a Savior. From there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I really do, so this is the first one. I believe one of the ways it it, it determines how we live today is because it gives us an eternal mindset. It gives us an eternal mindset. When we have nothing but this life to think about, we are gonna be consumed with this life. But with an eternal mindset, with an eternal mindset in our hearts, we understand that there's more. There is more than this life we are just passing through. There is more to come for you and for me and for those who follow Jesus. And so why would we worry? And this is what Jesus said. Why would you, why would you be so consumed about what you eat and what you drink and what you wear And what the next car needs to be? And where are you going to live? And do I need to change jobs? And am I going to have enough for retirement? And is this going to make me happy? And what about my kids' happiness? And how do I set them up for success? When you are consumed with this life, you have to be consumed with those things. But with an eternal mindset, when you understand heaven is the reward for your life of faith, that this is an eternal life you're talking about, your life right now is an eternal life. You have an eternal mindset that fixes your eyes on Jesus. It fixes your eyes on what he's called us to do the things that matter, to do the things with purpose that matter in life. Number two, Number two. this comes from uh, his letter to the Corinthians. He says, this is why we never give up. Talking to believers, this is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small, and they won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. We don't look at the troubles we see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. We don't just get an earthly mindset. We also get a resilient perspective. We get a resilient perspective because we do have to live in this world, and we do have to experience the brokenness of this life. We do have to experience pain and heartache and disease and illness and cancer and losing loved ones. We have to experience all of those hardships and troubles. And yet Paul says, you want to count your hardships and your sufferings as joy. How in the world do we do that? Well, not just an eternal mindset, but the resilient perspective that this is only going to be for a while. Okay, this is, listen, this has so much more meat than just the bumper sticker of, you know, the storm will eventually pass by. You know, this too shall pass. No, it's a resilient perspective that helps you understand that, you know what, it does hurt, and it does stink, and it is painful, and it does make me grieve, and it does hurt my soul, and it does affect the here and now. But I have a resilient perspective on understanding that this thing, this issue, this struggle is for a moment. It's not the thing that's going to last forever. It's not the thing that's going to be eternal. Number three, I'm just going to read this through quickly. This is the author of Hebrews. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to this life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. This life, Why we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. He goes on to talk about don't, don't weather the discipline that comes, even from God, like, like it all happens for a reason. Take, take a tired grip and a renewed spirit towards the life he's called you to. And later on in verse 22, we'll pick up, he says, you've come to Mount Zion. He's talking about this eternal picture. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of a living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You've come to the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God himself who is the judge over all things. And you've come to the spirits of righteous ones who's who's in heaven right now and have now been made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and his people and to the sprinkled blood which speaks forgiveness. Verse 26. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. It says, but now we have another promise that once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. It says that this means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things remain since we are receiving the kingdom that is unshakable. Let us be thankful and please God by worshiping Him with holy fear and awe. I mean, I wish I had 20 more minutes. I don't. But you need to understand that this, we not only have an eternal mindset and we not only have a resilient perspective, guys, but we have an unshakable faith. We have an unshakable faith when we see it, when we understand it, when we understand what eternity holds for the followers of Christ, for those who have have accepted his gift of salvation, the work on the cross, we've surrendered our lives to him. We are now living and pursuing everything that God has for us that matters. We have an unshakable faith. Too many Christians in too many churches that do not know the word of God. They do not pursue the things of God. Their faith is a house of cards. And one person wants to argue one thing and one person wants to make them feel bad for believing something that they're really not even sure they believe and it flips out that house of that little card and the whole house of your faith comes tumbling down. Guys, that is not the faith that God gave us. We have an unshakable faith because we have an unshakable kingdom that we belong to and by his absolute truth and the absolute hope that he's given us we can live our lives with power and grace and confidence and assurance we are the sons and daughters of god we have joint inheritance with jesus christ himself we are going to live eternally with god our creator guys we do not have to be afraid right? We do not have to settle for only knowing the little bit that we know about God when he gave us his word. And we do not have to fall for the lie The heaven's not, a lot of, not all that it's cracked up to be to get excited about, that everybody's probably going to be there, The hell doesn't really exist, and that my faith really doesn't matter. All of it's a lie. What we believe about eternity, what you believe, is going to determine how you live. And over the next several weeks, as we talk about hell, as we talk about how that affects us and why it matters and what it's supposed to do and how that fuels us for this life of faith, I want you to spend your time thinking about what you think you know and if just go to God's Word. Go into His Word and see what He wants to reveal to you about your eternity, and continue to build into your life that unshakable faith that we already have in His unshakable kingdom. Let's pray together. Father God, Your Word opens up our eyes today to things that we have a hard time really comprehending, and yet by your Spirit, by your Holy Spirit, you are already speaking to hearts this morning and revealing what it is true in them, in their hearts, and true about their life. And God, because of that this morning, I want to just take this small moment and ask the question to everyone in the room. I just want you to keep your, your head bowed and Close your eyes, but I want, I want you to just be honest that if God's been doing a work in you today because you do not have an unshakable faith and you have not been excited about heaven because quite frankly, you do not know if you will be there. I want to just take this small moment to give you the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. I want you to give this opportunity for you to just in this moment right now to stop putting it off, to stop making excuses, and surrender your life to Jesus. If that's you, I just want you to raise your hand. I want you to raise it boldly. I want you to take this opportunity. I want you to take this step right now. I see it. I see your hand. I do. I see it. I'm so proud of you. I want you to pray this prayer with me. Very simple. The rest of our church will join with you as we pray this together for you. Just say, Jesus, I accept the perfect work that you did for me. I cannot do this on my own. And I want to experience eternity with you. Jesus, I believe you're the son of God who laid down his life for me and I surrender my life back to you. And from this point forward, I want you to know you walk in eternity with him. That your destination is no longer unknown, but it will be with Jesus, that God will be with you. And our church and our whole body celebrates with you today. In your name, Jesus.